Good morning. I've enjoyed being here so far. I want to invite you today to consider a character in the Bible, and this is a little dangerous because this person happens to be one of my favorite characters in all of the Bible. And so trying to condense this down uh, may be a challenge, but this person factors into a lot of the major stories in the Bible, but he is seldom the main character. There are 30 to 40 chapters that he is involved in and I would say there is about one chapter in the Bible where he is the primary character. And further, he is known for basically two situations in his life. I'm going to keep giving you clues a little bit, but I'm not going to tell you yet who we're going to talk about. First of all, uh, I have a question for you. When you go and walk through a museum, there are a few types of people, and I'm, I'm being stereotypical here. But let's say on this side, there is the person who, if there's a plaque here, I'm going to take the time to read everything on the plaque, and I probably will read each and every plaque in the museum. So that would, that would be some, uh, some people. There may be people kind of in the middle who will start reading a plaque, and if it keeps their interest great, and if it doesn't, they may move on. Then there are those that may say, who has time to read plaques? I will look at pictures and I will watch videos, but I'm really just going to keep on rolling very quickly through the museum. Um, curious where you find yourself on this continuum. Who all are my plaque readers that are going to read every word? Very diligently. Thank you. Who all would be a little bit in the middle and kind of you know, read it but feel some freedom to move on if it's just not keeping your attention? Okay, all right. Thank you. And then who says that who has time to read? Let's just look for pictures and things that are very interesting. Thank you. We've got a few. Okay, I hope this isn't distracting, but here's the way I'm going to handle the background to the story. I'm going to put the text on the screen, but I'm not going to read it word for word. And I worry that that's going to bother my plaque readers. Um, and if it does, you are free to read it. I'm going to just tell you some of the background. And if you prefer to read, I won't be offended. So I'm going to give you some background to the story. Uh, before we jump into before we jump into the, today's story, so we're in the Old Testament, and God had promised the children of Israel to give them the promised land. They were to go in and take it, and they failed to do that. They failed to uh, to go in and and fully conquer the land. So it's okay if you all want to read this. You may. Um, what's happening here is God said, because you fell into sin, I am not going to drive out all of the nations quickly the way that he had intended to. But he's going to leave them there, and I think it says to be a thorn in their side and to be a test for them. So the nations were left at, um, to test them and to be a thorn in their side. Um, and I want you to notice this fact, that he's going to leave them there as a test to show what's in their hearts. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines. So the Philistines, there's so many stories in the Old Testament. Here's the background to what's going on. So they were left there to test the hearts of, of the children of Israel. What would happen then? God would raise up judges. And when the children of Israel would repent, God would call a judge and would work through that judge and would free them from the oppression of these other nations. But then guess what would happen? They would fall into sin. And the cycle would spin and spin and spin. And then they would pray and God would call another judge. One of the things to note is... Um, that the judges were not meant to be, it wasn't a, a hereditary thing that, well, this person was a judge and now the son, and then it just got passed on. God would always call, um, call these judges to lead out. 
So we're keeping going forward, and we have, at the end of the book of Judges, there is this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're continuing to go forward in the background. Samuel is the judge, and they have a huge army coming against them. And Samuel prays, and God miraculously sends thunder. Through thunder, frees them. And notice that during the days of Samuel, there was peace from the Philistines, they, all the land was restored all the way to Gath. Sounds familiar from Goliath of Gath. So the Philistines are totally, um, there was peace in the land of Israel while Samuel was there. But not all continued well. Samuel, and again, remember God was the one to call a judge. At the end of Samuel's life, he makes his sons the judges. And his sons are not walking with the Lord. And I don't know where all of this shifted, but at some point, the Philistines came back in, into their, uh, into their land. And the, the people look at this, and they look at their enemies, and they say, we want a king. And they said, basically, they wanted a king because they want it to be like the other countries. They wanted somebody to judge them. And what they really wanted is, we want a king that's going to go in front of us and fight our battles. And so God says, okay, we're going to give them... Uh, what they've asked for, the people are not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as being king over them. So Israel has insisted on a king, and God, God through Samuel, anoints a king, calls the king, and then the king goes right back to farming. And that is where we are today. So I've, I feel like I've given you some clues, and we're going to go back to our guess who game. The person we are about to talk about is the oldest of five siblings. He had two brothers and two sisters. He was a mighty warrior who some people believe was given the nickname of Gazelle. Does anybody under 12 know who we're talking about? David? Good guess. Anybody else want to guess? We'll keep going. This might give it away. This person lived in a terrible family situation. He was given every opportunity in the world to deal with jealousy, yet never gave into it. He was the friend that we would all want, and he was the prince that would never be king. Is that, who am I? Jonathan, yeah. So today I want to talk about Jonathan, the prince who served the king, the king of kings. Um, and I want to just invite you, we're going to read a lot of text, and if you can put yourself into Jonathan's shoes this morning, and it, again, it might be a little hard because he's not always the main character, but if you can think through the lens of Jonathan uh, today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. So 1 Samuel 13 and 14. And I, yeah, I love the, the story of Jonathan for a lot of reasons, a lot of things that, that it issues that it, it surfaces for people, um, but we're just going to focus on a few, a few today. So Saul, his dad, had been anointed king, but he really, like I said, he went back to farming. And what happened is there was a big enemy that was coming, and God moved in Saul, and he sends out word, and he gathers the troops, and he says, let's go fight against the enemy. And one thing to remember is when the first time Saul said, hey, everybody, let's gather together, 330,000 people came, and that's how God freed Israel at that point. And after that, they said, okay, we're going to officially make him king. 
they were, the people were scared because Samuel said, you're sinning. And at this point, again, while Saul is being crowned king, God sends thunder and rain to show that they have sinned. And the people said, okay, will you forgive us, Lord? And God says in, verse 20, in chapter 12, verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people. In verse 24 and 25, Samuel says, only fear the Lord, but if you do wickedly, you and your king will be swept away. So again, Saul is the focus here, but let's think about Jonathan. If you are the son of the king at this point, how do you feel leaving this ceremony where your dad is installed as king, you know that it's not really what God had in mind, but God is promising that if you're faithful, he's going to work through the kingdom and, and, uh, and not leave you. So I wonder if Jonathan, I believe Jonathan left this ceremony wanting to walk in the fear of the Lord and wanting to help his dad walk in the fear of the Lord. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, now we'll start reading the text. Um, so all of you plaque readers can relax. I'm going to read what's up here. You can follow along. Um, 1 Samuel 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and just a note, the, the text isn't entirely clear here, but it's probably meaning when he was anointed, there was a year that passed until he was you know, honored and, and really stepped in. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. So Gibeah of Benjamin, that is their hometown. That's where they lived. The rest of the people, he sent home every man to his tent. So the, the, the kingdom is being established. He's getting his army going. And this is probably the extent of his long-term army. May have been considered like his bodyguards. Saul makes Jonathan the second in command. Um, one thing to note, so Saul is in this town here, and Jonathan is in Gibeah. Obviously, those names don't mean much to us. It's about the same distance as Catlett to Noakesville. So Saul is in Catlett with 2,000 men. Jonathan is in Noakesville with 1,000 men. I don't know why they split up. I don't know why they did it uh, this way. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. So the first thing that happens, and imagine if, again, if Saul's in Catlett and Jonathan is in Noakesville, and there is a Philistine garrison in between the two. And it had been there for a long time. Um, sometime after Samuel fell, in, fell into sin, God allowed the Philistines back in. It's so interesting. We don't know why Saul didn't attack we don't know why. What do you think was in Jonathan's heart that he just, he just attacked this garrison? Do you think it was the right move? Was it the wrong move? How do we know? Scripture actually doesn't really tell us, doesn't give us much background, but we just know that there was a, a Philistine garrison there, and he attacked it and defeated it. And I wonder if I put myself in Jonathan's shoes, and you live right in this area, and there's an enemy outpost there. Well, if you're leading a band of men, why would you not try to take care of this? And he steps into it courageously. But uh, let's see what happens. So Saul blew the trumpet, let the Hebrews hear, Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. 
So very interesting, Saul sent out the message and somehow everybody hears that Saul defeated the garrison. And I don't know whether Saul was the one that wrote that memo or how that happened. But again, if you're Jonathan, what are you feeling at this point? What? Saul defeated the garrison? Okay. And, and maybe it's just that he was part of Saul's uh, army. But the bigger deal is that they had become a stench to the Philistines. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and camped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. So they brought all of these troops and camped right where Saul was at. Let's go on. When the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So when the people saw the size and the strength of the army that came, you had people hiding in caves, fleeing for a safe country, and just flat out defecting and going and joining the opposing army. And anybody who didn't, it says, was, was left, was following Saul and was trembling. If you are Jonathan at this point, what are you feeling now? Do you think you are questioning the decision to attack the garrison? Particularly if he felt like he was doing the right thing? Have you ever done what you thought was right and it sure felt like it just backfired in ways you could have never predicted? And I wonder if that's what Jonathan was thinking. All the people are leaving, they're scared, they're trembling. Let's go on. So Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So to offer the offering was something that only the priest should have done. Saul waits seven days, and he, just, he gives in to fear. The people are scattering, and he decides to do the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and burnt the burnt offering. Essentially, Saul here is making a lot of excuses for doing the wrong thing. And he chose to disobey, to disobey God. And I don't know where Jonathan was during this time, but I would expect he was probably there, there with his dad, um, watching his dad make, make the wrong choice. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up to, from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So the tragic news that already God had taken the kingdom from Saul. And again, if we're putting our, ourselves in Jonathan's shoes... We don't know for sure if he knew that meant that he would not be king. Likely he understood that. 
It, you know, it could have meant that God was taking it from Saul and he was going to step in, but probably he knew that he was not going to be king at this point. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So we know what the size of the other army is. We know he started with 3,000. He blew the trumpet. He's down to 600 people um, who have, have stuck with him. The story continues and explains um, how dire the situation was. And Saul and, his, and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Mich, in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul, another company toward Beth Horon, another company towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So they're camping there, and the Philistines are sending out raiders in, in three different directions. And it goes on, and it is showing it's even worse. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So they had, they had totally, they made sure there were no blacksmiths there. There was nobody who knew how to work with iron in this way. So even to get their farming equipment, they'd have to go down and pay these big fees. So they were very poor. And they had essentially no weapons that could compete. Um, again, if you're Jonathan, what are you feeling and thinking at this point? Where, what is the hope? You know, God called my dad to be the king. He disobeyed. Here we are. We're stuck. We have 600 people. We don't even have weapons. Um, and scripture does say that they had two, two swords. So I brought along a sword. Um, so there were two in Israel at this point. Jonathan had one and Saul had one. But what good, is, what good is two swords really going to do in this kind of situation? And what do you think Jonathan feels while he walks around and he has one of the two in the whole army of, of 600 people? What is he thinking? What's he feeling at this point? If I'm Jonathan... At this point, my faith has probably been shaken, and I don't know, I hope that my faith would be holding on, but I just can't imagine how it feels to be in that situation and wondered what was happening uh, with his faith. But let's go on to chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So Jonathan is here day after day, and, and finally, you know what? Something really needs to change here. So he goes to his armor bearer and said, hey, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side, but he does not tell his dad. What do you think his dad would have told him if he had said what he wanted to do? 
keep reading the text. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So Saul also has his sword, and he's hiding. There's a whole long list of names, but the thing that's important is the people who were acting as priests were Eli's descendants. And God had rejected them from that office. And Paul, uh, Saul has them with him there. The people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sine. My apologies if I'm butchering these words. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Since I have not been here, I think it would help us to see pictures of what we're talking about. So this is a, and we don't know exactly where they were in the valley, but here's, here are pictures from this area. And what you see is there's you know, a very sharp cliff, a mountain on one side and over here on the other. And somewhere along here, the Philistines were camping. They were a mile or less separating the two armies, if you can call the Israelites group an army. And there was this big valley in between them, and the Philistines had the prime spot where they were looking out. And so Jonathan said, hey, yeah, let's, well, let's go climb up over there. And here's what he said. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So he's saying, let's go up to the, to the enemies of the Lord because God might act and nothing can hinder or stop God from a few or many. And it's so interesting in this story, do you, and we'll, it'll happen again. Notice how often Saul counts the people that, is, that, that he has on his side. I'm not sure why he's so fascinated with it. He's, he's counting 600. And Jonathan is saying, Let's just go. It doesn't really matter how many. God isn't hindered by many or few. Let's go and see what God does. So he lays out the plan. Well, first of all, his armor, would you go with Jonathan at this point? He, he talks to his armor bearer, and his armor bearer says, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Isn't that awesome? We don't even know this guy's name. We don't know anything about him, but he says, I'm going to go with you. I'm with you, heart and soul. I, I'm going to go and, and we're in this together. So here's the plan. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So here is Jonathan. There's a, a fire burning in his belly that says something has to change. This is wrong. Maybe God's going to act. But he doesn't run ahead of God. He takes action and he holds it with an open hand and says, God, if you want me to do this, show me. And if not, I guess we'll turn around and go back home, climb up the other cliff. So, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. I don't think that that was said with much fear. I think that was probably like, Oh, ha, like, here you guys come. Look, look who's finally coming out of their holes. 
And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And I just want to be clear here, again, that show you a thing, I don't think is, hey, I have something interesting to show you. It's come up here, we're going to show you guys something, like, come on. But what is so fascinating to me is that apparently by the time they shout this down to Jonathan, the translation is entirely different by the time it hits Jonathan's ears. Jonathan says, and Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. So you have them saying, come up here, we're going to show you. And what Jonathan is hearing is, you know what, God has given this victory into our hands. He's going to act on our behalf. Let's go. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. So I just want to stop there. Can you, can you picture the pictures that I just showed of this place? Can you imagine climbing up with two people, one sword, and we know there's at least 20 people right at the rim. I think that this time period from when I started climbing until I get to the top would have been some of the hardest ground in my life to ever cover. I think they, I wonder if they felt ever wondered about turning around, but they climb up and it says they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed after him. So Jonathan gets there first and, and they're both uh, meeting the enemy and God is giving them victory. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. So here they are, they climb up out of obedience to the Lord and God acts on their behalf. And there's 20 people who die um, that were opposing them in a half acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp. In the field, among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So we don't know what all happened, but God sent fear and there was a noise. Um, some people would think that the army got down into the into the valley where they were trapped and entirely panicked and started fighting each other. So the earthquake, God acted on their behalf in a miraculous way. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So even at this point, Saul doesn't go join. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. So it's interesting that when God, God made sure we noticed in the story that Israel had two swords. And now you come to here where God is fighting the thing that looked insurmountable. The enemy's actually using their swords and fighting each other. God is acting on their behalf, and there was a very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. So at the end of the day, the story is not about Jonathan at all. The story is about the Lord, the self-existent one, 
who saved Israel that day. And um, that's very clearly brought out here in verse 23. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but in it, Saul had taken a, a rash vow that said, if nobody in the army can eat until my enemies are, are um, taken care of this day, Jonathan didn't even know that. While, while they're chasing the Philistines, you know the story, he dips his staff into honey, he eats it. Um, at the end, it, it comes out that somebody had broken the king's decree. And who was it? And they go through this process, and God reveals that it was, it was actually Jonathan. Saul asks Jonathan what he did and listens to his words. He said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. So can you put yourself in Jonathan's shoes? Just the excitement and something's got to change and God acts in amazing ways. And at the end of the day, because his dad had again acted foolishly, he was decreed to die. And you have a man who is willing to say, I did that and I'm willing to die. And just the, um, the humility that that would take and the, um, it's clear you're not living for your own agenda at this point. And you are entirely putting your life into God's hands who can defend you or not. So at the end of this day, that's where he's at. His dad wants to, well, I don't know. Did he want to kill him? Probably not, but he was going to. Um, I believe he would have to save his own face. Compare Saul and Jonathan in this story. And, and then we know the story. The, the whole, all of Israel said, no, this is not going to happen. And Jonathan's life, um, Jonathan's life is spared. Why does the story of Jonathan connect with me so much in this story and then beyond? And I think if I'm honest, some of it is with my own tendency towards being self-centered. My own tendency to focus on my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions, and just so challenged by what happens when we, with an open hand, live for God's agenda. Here's a man who was surrendered to God's plan and motivated by God's glory and was willing to set aside all of his own personal reputation and live for the Lord. So I think that's, I guess it's a confession and part of why the story of Jonathan connects with me um, so deeply. And we're not going to talk about all of these things, but it just feels like it surfaces so many of the core issues in life. What's our identity? What's our purpose? How do we respond when we're wronged? What do we do with jealousy? What do we do in tough situations? On and on and on, Jonathan faces all of these. Um, But I want to just focus on three lessons for today um, from his life and this particular story from Jonathan the prince who served the king. The first one is that he was faithful in a difficult situation. The people were not walking with God. The king disobeyed God. His own father had let him down. And he was a prince who would never be king. And how did he handle those, um, those difficult situations? You have two men in the exact same situation in the same family, Saul and Jonathan, who respond worlds apart. And he lived faithfully in a very difficult um, situation. So I know that we can't exactly relate to the specific situation he was in, but I know that probably 
everybody here is facing difficulties in your life um, at this point. And will, again, the story is not about Jonathan, but will we allow God to let us live faithful and difficult situations? One of the things, I guess, is a bit of a burden for me um, in my role of a pastor is that following the Lord Jesus is, and please hear me, it is wonderful, and it is, there are blessings beyond what can be described. But we also have to know that it's hard, and we have to have the mindset that following Christ is daily taking up our cross, and it is expecting um, for it to be difficult, and that it is not a comfortable life. We're told that in the last days, perilous or horrible times will come. And we have to, through God's grace, be ready to live in those difficult times. One of the things that is a concern for me, and I feel it in my own heart, is the search for comfort in my own life. If that becomes my guiding principle, it's number one, it's an illusion, and number two, it's wrong. Um, That we are not called to a comfortable life. Following Christ will not be comfortable. And so can we embrace that walking with the Lord will involve difficulties and sufferings, 100% worth it and 100% daily loaded with blessings, but that we can walk faithfully in difficult situations. The second one is living for God's agenda and glory and not my own. You know, Jonathan could have easily, he could have spent weeks pouting, like, Dad, God made you king, and then really in the first battle you disobey him? He could have been upset about that. He could have said, you know what? I went out and I attacked the the Philistine garrison, and it backfired, and I'm sitting on my hands, and I am not taking action again. And I I bet that probably all of us have faced that emotion at some point in our life. I've tried it. I've gotten hurt. I've gotten burned, and I'm not taking action again. Hopefully you're different than me, but that can be something that, uh, that we face. So he, wasn't, uh, he was submitted to God's will. He surrendered to God's plan. And uh, he was willing to attack the outpost near his house, near his home. So one of the things that I had to think about is, again, applying the story to my life and our life, what are the, the Philistine or the, the wrong outposts that are just close to us that we kind of get used to? And we just go past them. And most, most alarming, or I guess where most of my attention, our attention should go, are the, anything in our own heart that is, is not under God's control. That's the outpost we, we need to be concerned about. But we're also called to take the gospel and to live offensively with the gospel. So what... Is there any chance that there's a problem, there's something that's just, this isn't right that burns in your belly that God is, is saying, you know what, you, you need to take action on that. And I even wonder for us as a church, what are the things that, that we just kind of get used to that aren't right, that maybe God is saying, by the power of the Spirit, move forward with the gospel and try to address um, these situations. So... Um, we will only do that if we're living for God's agenda and glory and not our own. Um, the last one is he was courageous because of who God is. And I'm amazed at this. He was not overwhelmed by the odds. He just said, you know, God isn't hindered with numbers. Um, and he believed in the character of God and the, and the promises of God. 
So I asked myself in my life, and again, we've not been in Jonathan's situation, but what are the situations that we maybe look at and say, you know what, I, I don't know. I don't know how this ever changes. Are there situations where we're not focused on God and who he is and saying God is not hindered by um, what we're looking at? And some of the time that this may, we may be called to take action first, Jonathan lived expectantly for what God might do. God is all-powerful, but he often works through people. And we often have to obey before we may see God acting. Um, one of the things that I wrote down is that I may have to act courageously before God acts miraculously. I may have to act courageously before God acts miraculously. And I hope that you hear my heart. This is not saying that we can twist God's arm or tell him what to do. But Jonathan said, God might do this, and I want him to confirm it. Um, but sometimes we're called to, um, to act courageously first. Um, for some reason, the image of the sword really grabs me in this story. And, and as I think about it, Saul had one and Jonathan had one. And I, I would say that each of us have things that God places in our lives that are like the sword. And some of them can be natural giftings. Some of them are supernatural. They're, um, they're spiritual gifts. There's just there's things that God has given us that he intends to be used in his kingdom. And the story is just so graphic of me of Saul sitting scared while Jonathan is... So the one sword is sidelined. The other one, Jonathan, is climbing up a cliff. But again, the point is not the sword. Like God didn't need the sword, but God did need Jonathan to say, I'm going to go with what I have and put it into your hands. Um, and so I don't know what it is that God has in your life, but there's a certain way that he's made you and things he wants you involved in. Take the sword and put it in his hands and, and follow him and see what, what he'll do with it. Um, so what am, I doing? what am I doing with the sword that God has given me? Can I be courageous because of who, of who God is? So a question for me, what am I doing with my sword? And another question is, what situations keep me sitting under the tree with my sword? All right, Jonathan, the prince who served the king, faithful in difficult situations, living for God's agenda and glory, not my own, courageous because of who God is. The story is not about Jonathan. The story is about a God who worked through Jonathan and... These are the things that I would like to be true in my life. I invite you to stand and have a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you this morning for who you are. God, thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for new life in Christ. God, thanks for your word. Lord, thank you for these stories. And God, I ask that... Uh, through the power of your spirit, that you would speak truth um, from your word. God, I pray that if there's anything that I have spoken that's not from you, would you in your kindness blow that away? And God, if there's things from you, may it take root. Um, Lord, I want to live faithfully. I want to live with my confidence in you and my hope in you. Live for your glory. And uh, God, walk in courage because of who you are. Um, God, I just pray that you would help each of us here to walk faithfully with you this week. And uh, 
do all we do for your glory and to point people to Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.